Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do lists one week at a time. I'm your host, Sam, and with me are my co-hosts, the Spectre of Tessa. Hello. And, well, I guess it's also the Spectre of Andy. You guys are having such good times well, right now. Is the Spectre of Tessa like... A ghost that haunts a castle or property named Tessa, like that. That that that's what I imagine. That yes. like it's yes, her spirit departed from her corporeal self and has descended back down to haunt me. Yeah, or uh, is is like haunting like Loch Ness, but instead it's Loch Tess, and it's Tessie. I like it. For those who are unaware, I am defending my dissertation in like three days, and Sam has had to deal with the lovely person I've become over the last week preparing. And then, who's next? Andy's next. (laughs) But I'm already a lovely person that Sam has to deal with, so it's (laughs) going to get so much worse. You're all lovely people that I have to deal with. (laughs) This week... Tessa finds a good lawyer, I hope. Andy stir-fries you in his walk, and I donate all my money to tax-deductible charity organizations. That's right. We're talking about music again, because I'm hosting the podcast this week. I wanted to do this episode after watching The Song Remains the Same, which was like 17 different genres combined, right? It was a concert film, but... It was the concert film where they have the little skits in the middle, which is a whole different genre, or at least a subgenre. They did like fictional storytelling badly in an an- it was like an anthology of stories. It was a documentary of sh- of sorts because they talked about the money being taken. It's like it, it was not a good film, and so it really left me with a taste for what you know, a good rockumentary or concert film might be. So we've taken a shot, each one of us, at films we hadn't seen yet, and hopefully they were good. We'll find out. You might have guessed Tessa's talking about Amy Winehouse, Andy is talking about the Beastie Boys, and I am talking about Bob Dylan. So let's reverse chronology. We went with chronological order last week, so let's flip it over this week. Tessa, that means we're starting with you. Amy. Yeah, so I watched Amy, which was the 2015 British documentary on Amy Winehouse directed by Asif Kapadia. And as you can guess from the title, it's about Amy Winehouse. Now, who is Amy Winehouse? Who indeed is Amy Winehouse? That is basically what this documentary is seeking to uncover or to reflect I guess it starts from when she was a teenager in 1998 for some reason I wrote 2018 that's not right 1998 to her death from alcohol poisoning in 2011 and it is mostly composed of footage of her performances interviews with her both ones that were aired and ones that were privately done with different people like over the phone or in studio sessions and archived footage that most people had not seen before. I think this is interesting because this is a time period that's kind of a blank spot for me because I was not invested in pop culture as much during this particular time. 
there were some really interesting things that came out of watching this documentary, but what period, a period that you're much more familiar with, did this cover? I mean, she was she only wrote two albums, uh, two studio albums, I should say. And she so she was mostly active between the years of 2002 to when she died, 2011. So it really it was a look into the musical scene of the aughts and specifically her little corner of it because she was doing music that really no one else had done before. And I know that you'll talk about this later when you talk about Bob Dylan. But one of the two things, one of the things. One of the things that I noticed that was a thread between those two people, Bob Dylan and Amy Winehouse, who are not two people I would normally associate with, is that they both basically said, I wasn't hearing the kind of music that I liked. And so I went and made that music. And so, you know, she, especially her first album, Frank, lots of jazz influences, lots of Ella Fitzgerald and Tony Bennett and you know, those types of things she was singing mostly in jazz clubs. But then her big album, um, which most people consider to be her best album, Back to Black, she's doing a lot more like jazz and rock together. She's doing a lot more pop, but although she didn't really like describing her music as pop, but she still has that like jazz aesthetic to it. So this film really wants to talk about not only her musical development and also, you know, we get a little glimpse into what projects she might have been interested in doing next had she not tragically died in 2011. But it also talks a lot about how personal her music was and what things were going on in her life that contributed to her as a musician and as a songwriter. Now, you mentioned a minute ago about being a jazz singer. You know, uh, Amy Winehouse considered herself a jazz singer. We find out that Questlove considered her a jazz singer. The artist formerly known as Maz Def thinks of her as a jazz singer. Tony and so does Bennett. Tony Bennett. Right. Is that how you thought of her at the time when you were listening to her to begin with? I mean, is that something that I was surprised by that? And I wondered if you were too. You know, I don't know if I knew enough about jazz to be able to say that Amy Winehouse, what she was doing exactly at the time. Now, I think I recognize that a lot more, especially in that first album, Frank, that that's what she's doing. But I think at the time, I mean, I was a teenager, a young teenager when she first started making music. I don't think that I would have known enough about jazz to know exactly that what she was doing. All I remember is that she had one of the most unique voices that I had ever heard and what she was doing vocally was really interesting because it was so different than all of the like pop stars that were really popular at the time in the early aughts, especially. And I mean, I guess in the late aughts as well. So, you know, it, it was one of those things where I just as a fan thought like, Oh, this is really cool what she's doing. This film really tries to cement her as someone who knew jazz really well. Like you said, Questlove specifically said, like he said, I thought I knew jazz. Like she was always sending me stuff that I'd never heard before. And she was really interested in bringing that into more of a a popular space in a lot of ways. It's, it's really interesting. The connections to the Bob Dylan documentary, they, they have some very similar things. Uh, and one of them is knowing more about their genre than anyone else. I wouldn't have pat- put it past Amy Winehouse to have stolen LPs either. Much like <laughs> um, I think you're also saying that kids should listen to jazz. Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> I mean, like, I think that it's interesting that she was like, I grew up listening to jazz and I just wanted to make that kind of music. And jazz was not popular in the aughts. Like, I mean, you guys know this. Like, it was right. not... 
we weren't nobody was listening to that especially like teenagers right like that was like old people music so the fact that she like <laughs> took it and made it into something that like so many people connect with i mean she has some of the highest selling records of all time especially back to black well and then the, you know the first thing that you teach the children is jazz is not just one thing right right you know like i just finished the run of homeland which is uh put up against like freeform jazz to to demonstrate what's going on in the head of somebody um with uh, bipolar disorder and right also uh jazz yeah. is what's not played too you have to remember it the notes that are played but also right. the notes that are not played much like much of her music where she took that and went to uh, the only song i know by winehouse is rehab so i just keep thinking i just hear it keep hearing go no right. no no yeah and i mean like that kind of jazz the kind of jazz that she does is is more blues influenced right and and so that you know that's that's one thing of course there's like multiple different kinds of of jazz and of course there's smooth jazz right which is a distillation into something that's very palatable but this isn't a podcast about jazz none of us are qualified for that so i'm going to come back to this in a little bit but i want to ask you first in thinking about this this film you chose this film because you wanted to see a a rockumentary, a music documentary that actually talked about the music. There's a surprising lot of footage that was available, right? So, I mean, like, how was the was the music element of this documentary good? I think so. Like, it's interesting comparing this to the Bob Dylan documentary that you're going to talk about later, because with Bob Dylan, there's just so much music like he made. He's made just like an amazing amount of music over decades and decades and decades. And so, you know, a, a documentary like that one has a lot to draw on. She only made the two studio albums and she collaborated with maybe a couple people on on other things like Tony Bennett and Mike, Mark Ronson more famously. But she only has the two albums, but this documentary is clearly made by people who know those two albums very, very well, who are very familiar with her as a songwriter, because that was the other thing, is that she wrote her own songs, and they're deeply, deeply personal songs. And so I really enjoyed the way that this film layered the songs on top of the things that were going on in her life. So, you know, like in Frank, she is talking a lot about her relationship with an older man who was kind of like her first love. And while they're detailing that relationship, they're like layering it with songs and they're actually putting the lyrics on the screen as she's singing them so you can kind of see like okay here are the connections between what she's singing about and what's going on in her life and they do the same thing with back to black although i think they have more they have more studio footage of her performing back to black and recording back to black especially the actual song back to black which is an amazing song there's some really good archival footage in this of her recording that song and i really enjoyed that they like show the process of her recording the vocals without any of the music and then they kind of they they step back into the booth and like you can hear the actual music come in to her like recording the vocals and then they like they fade it back out so you can just hear her vocalizing again it's just it's really interested in her music and how she saw music how she saw music in relationship to her life and to me with 
considering the fact this this came out in 2015 and she died in 2011, I feel like this movie is trying as close as it can to get her perspective on her music without actually being able to, of course, talk to her and ask her for her perspective on her music. So by the way, Andy, I don't know if you knew this. This is an A24 production. Yes. Mm. I should have mentioned that. So, um, so I've convinced you to watch it, right? We're all done here. Andy, do you remember... I know, Tessa, the answer is going to be no on this, and I know why. Andy, do you remember, because this would have been, the tail end would have been when you were pretty young, VH1's Behind the Music documentaries, do you know that? Yes, yes, I do. I I remember when they started, and it was it was great, right? It was like every week you could watch, like, you know, you could find out a little bit more about, you know, this or that artist, and... But the joke was, eventually it became very formulaic because everybody who has a behind-the-music story has that humble beginnings, the rise, the fall, the phoenix-like rise from the ashes. And then they did one on Weird Al, and he was like, and then he was like, just kidding, nothing really bad happened, I'm sorry. You know, because it's like a joke, right? And and, um, Amy Winehouse is dead. Right. And she was a drug addict. And she got involved with one of the worst people on the face of this planet. Yeah, her boyfriend, then husband, Blake. then ex-husband Blake comes across as like one of the worst people in this in this documentary. But yeah, I I think it's also interesting too because I was thinking a lot while watching parts of this of the documentary who, that came out last year, framing Britney Spears where they were talking a lot about like just the misogyny of the aughts, um, especially from tabloids and like any kind of reporting on any female celebrity pop stars, especially that like messed up in any kind of way. Like, you know, like Britney Spears obviously was really like hounded by by the tabloids and by the press, especially nothing that she did was right. According to them, they wanted her to be hypersexualized and get punished her for being hypersexualized. Amy Winehouse's situation was a little bit different, but the way that the press covered her was very demonizing of her and her struggle with her drug addiction and her alcohol addiction and her bulimia. And like, it was very not, it was very unkind. And the fact that she was struggling with all of these things and and a lot of mental health issues that were perhaps undiagnosed as well. um, It was really interesting to kind of compare those two things and be like, yeah, like I remember being a teenager in the aughts and I came from a really conservative household. So maybe I wasn't as exposed to it as other people were but like the idea of like celebrity culture and the way it was just really unrestrained at that time period the way that people could profit off of the misery of um, especially women in in this business I just think that that's a really interesting take that this film has Um, as well as of course showing us numerous pictures of her in those very low-rise shorts that she liked to wear I'm really glad that low-rise has gone the way of that as well. I was a little confused about this, about how they connected these things, but they were talking about Pete Doherty uh, of the Libertines and Baby Shambles, which is pretty much why I was tuned out of pop culture at this point. The the misogyny you talk about and just these awful, awful pieces of people. And they connect Pete and Blake together. And I was I was a little confused. Go on, Andy. 
So I can excuse misogyny, but I draw the line at pop music. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, I thought that was interesting too, is that I don't I didn't know much about like the the British music scene at this time. Like again, I, I came from a conservative American household. I wasn't doing like my research on these things. You you were listening to Casting Crowns. Uh, sure. That's definitely something my mom listen, listened to. Listen, I mean, I mean, these guys make the Gallaghers look like the kind of kids you can take home to mom and just be like, these guys are nice. Yeah. So she, like it's it was really interesting seeing her in context of like being like a kid from London. And she was like super smart. Like I hadn't seen a lot of these interviews like she was very witty and very funny and like constantly rolling her eyes at like you know, people who were trying to ask her questions that she didn't think were particularly smart or about the music, right? She was very much somebody who was about the music and not about the fame that came around it. And, you know, she had her first house that she bought was in Camden, which is, I think, the connection between all these people is that that was like a big music scene in England at the time. Had no idea. Like, these are all pieces of information that I didn't know. And, you know, putting it together to figure out her influences on these albums, I think is is really fascinating. Also didn't know that there is an actual story behind rehab. And when she says, my daddy says I'm fine, I always assumed she was like talking about her boyfriend. You know, my daddy says I'm fine. She's talking about her actual father. Like they were trying, her manager at the time was trying to get her to go into rehab. And her father was like, oh no, you're fine. You don't have to go. And she literally wrote a song about it. <laughs> <laughs> It's, I mean, it's, it's really sad watching the, the transformation, as you said, the very witty, acerbic person who goes from that to without drugs, life is boring. Right. And she, I mean, she, she really fell apart by the end. And like, you can see her trying to protest in the only way she knew how, like by not singing at a show that she really didn't want to do and like these types of things. But I mean, if you are going to watch this, you should know, like, you know, it does have a lot to say about drug addiction. It is like watching somebody basically destroy themselves, you know, because, you know, they have all of these different issues and they have people around them that aren't necessarily taking care of them. So that is something that you should know going into this. Did you, is there anything else you learned that you wanted to mention? Other than Mark Ronson needed a serious glow up at that point in his career. Oh I'm glad God. he got, I mean, he got one yeah. Good for him, but <laughs> I mean, this was just, I think this was a really good film. I did learn a lot about Amy Winehouse. I was already a huge fan of her music. I mean, back to black is one of those albums that I could just listen to on repeat. And I have listened to it on repeat before. And so actually seeing more information about the creation of it and, her as a person, I think, is is really, really fascinating. It definitely felt very sad by the end of it that she wasn't with us, especially hearing her talk at, near the end of the documentary about some of the things that she, the next projects she wanted to get into. Like, she was kind of over Back to Black. She wanted to, to move on musically, and she wanted to do, like, collaborations with Questlove and, you know, people like that. And I, I think that that would have been really, I would have loved to have heard what she would have done next if she hadn't tragically died. That that super group of Amy Winehouse, Questlove, and Maz Def. And yeah, I don't that's remember, what she wanted. I didn't recognize the other name, but I'm like, yeah, that would have been good. Yeah. Would have watched that. So, recommend. Yeah, I would recommend. Yeah. This is probably one of the best rockumentaries I think I've ever seen about somebody that really manages to balance the personal life of the artist with 
the music of the artist and to try to look at the intersection between the two. Usually when I look at documentaries about musicians, they kind of go one way or the other. This one seemed very well balanced. Uh, there was a lot in here. I, I actually want to listen. There's a soundtrack um, to this particular documentary. I actually want to go back and listen to it because some of the the songs in here are demos and things that, that didn't make it onto the album. So yeah, I would recommend this to anyone who likes Amy Winehouse or is interested in learning more about her. And if you haven't really heard that much Amy Winehouse, like Andy, I would really recommend listening to Back to Black. So before we move on, I, I want to ask you, because I want you to go a little bit more into what you just said, but also I want to hear Andy chuckle. You watched this film and it wasn't your first choice. Can you talk a little bit about what your first choice was and why you ultimately chose not to watch it and watch this instead? Oh, yeah. So I I, I edited this out of the last uh, podcast episode, but I originally was going to watch Edge Play, which, was a, which is a documentary about the Runaways that was done by Victory Tischler Blue. Um, did this documentary about the Runaways, and it had everyone except for Joan Jett involved in it. Joan Jett <laughs> didn't want to be involved in it because she has a real rift with Lita Ford, especially and the other members of the Runaways, because she doesn't remember that particular time period the same way that they do. And so the problem with the film is is that even though it's supposed to be a very good documentary, and I am going to watch it eventually, is that it doesn't have a lot of the actual music by The Runaways because Joan Jett is a co-writer on most of The Runaways' music, and so she refused to let them use the music for the film. And a lot of people have basically said, yeah, this is more about, like, the personal drama of the runaways and like all of the ways that they were exploited by their manager, who also is interviewed for this film. And it just didn't seem like something that I was really wanting to get into. Like I said before, I I was looking more for a documentary that was about the music, especially since we had just watched that Bob Dylan documentary. And I wanted to highlight female, a female musician and her contribution to music and not necessarily look at a film that was more about the way that they were exploited and the horrors of the music industry. Again, I plan on watching this eventually. It's just, it wasn't something that was appealing to me in the moment. Not that, not that Amy didn't have plenty of the horrors of oh, the music yeah. industry. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, that's not you to downplay that. the horrors in <laughs> Amy. It's just that this, this film was... This film was also just, this is someone who was a musician and who took music very seriously. And... I don't think that all documentaries about female musicians especially do that. They like to focus more on the personal life. And this one was like, no, she was somebody who had a lot of problems and had a lot of drama, but she also was very, very, very professional about her music. So the term rockumentary is, of course, a, a combination of rock and documentary. It's, it's kind of seen as a pejorative sometimes. It's definitely overused. But the documentary about music, of course, became very, very uh, formalized as a format in large part thanks to VH1, another channel that no longer shows music. I don't think it gets as much attention as MTV does. But as promised, we're not just talking about rockumentaries today. It was rockumentaries and concert films. Andy has a, a very interesting film to talk about. It is called. It is called, and 
And I'm going to remember because Sam has to edit this episode, so I am going to make sure to say the full title of this. Awesome. I f***ing shot that. That's right. The movie I did is awesome. I fucking shot that by the one and only director, the great Nathaniel Hornblower. So this is not the Spike Jones documentary that one can find on Apple. Is that correct? Oh, correct. You this this documentary, this uh awesome semicolon, I fucking shot that is directed by Nathaniel Hornblower and you cannot find this movie. Okay. Go on. This movie is not easy to find. Why not? It is not available for streaming anywhere. Anywhere, anywhere, it is not available for streaming. You cannot rent this movie. You cannot find this movie. This movie was the most difficult movie I've ever had to find, so I had to resort to a classical method of purchasing a used DVD from Amazon. How'd that go? That didn't go well. Aw. That, that, that did not go well. So... I I get this um this DVD again uh called Awesome I shot that bought it used I get it in the mail it is in a cardboard slip and clearly is just a burnt DVD that somebody had and this burnt DVD could not be recognized by my PlayStation Five my Xbox a few other disc players that I tried to use <laughs> your child your this, child also uh, did not recognize it yeah. Yeah, I had to resort to pulling up a Linux laptop I have, installing special software, and watching it on that. Wow, that's a that's commitment to watching this particular film. Uh, oh, oh, it gets worse. So when I started watching it, it is in horrible quality, and and I I just assumed that oh. Because this is, you know, a shot live uh, in 2004, the Beastie Boys concert. This would, this was just how it was. No, no, no. You can find some very high quality clips on YouTube of of this movie. So it is hard to find. So what is this? It's not just a regular concert film. You've kind of alluded to this a little bit, but what is the idea behind this? Okay, so the idea behind this film, and also the other thing I want to say is this is an oscilloscope productions film, and the reason why oscilloscope productions is important, and it links to the A24-ness of, uh, of Amy, oscilloscope was a production company started by uh, MCA, aka Adam Yauch, who started it with the founder of A24. So they are, they are a film company, that usually specializes in documentaries. There's a few movies that you would recognize, like Fitz, um, some other stuff. Uh, but so a- anyway, um, this movie was directed by again by Nathaniel Hornblower, who is not David Cross in a costume, and it was basically they gave 50 handheld camcorders to different members of the audiences and told them to go wild. Wow! So it's like an audience driven documentary yes yes and here here's here's another fun little thing right after the concert they returned all 50 camcorders to keep the production budget low that's nice let me ask you before you before you go any further i i i want to know what is your overall take on the the concert film genre 
Oh, see, one of the things about a concert film is I always feel like, one, they they use the best outtakes from multiple concerts. So so you're, you're not getting a very good representation of what a concert actually is. Two, it's so focused on what the band is doing that you're not getting an actual experience of a concert, right? Because going to a concert is more than just staring at the band for two hours. There's things like waiting for the band to come out. There's the buildup of tension. There's that moment that you realize that the person next to you is playing, is uh, listening to what is now their favorite song, the, the song that means the most to them. And they're screaming along with the lyrics so much louder than the band. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that if it's... Um, if it's Green Day's uh, Boulevard of Broken Dreams, because to that person, that person is having the most. Are they having intense... the time of their life? <sighs> Damn it! Wish Green Day I... played three songs ago. <laughs> First of all, that that's always their closer. So uh, no. All right, said. Se- second of all, y- y- exactly. <laughs> but but you're also you're also missing out on the awkwardness of. Finding a line and ordering a drink. Are these things that you miss out on? The thing is, if you're trying to get a concert experience, that is accurate to what a concert experience is. You don't just show up at a concert. The band starts immediately when you're there. Then they play all their stuff. Everyone has a great time and they leave. No. This is like waiting for them, like not being able to go see movies because it was during the pandemic, right? And it finally comes out on VOD. Somebody comes into my house, sits down and starts talking. Like you're telling me I'm missing out on the theater. When people keep saying, you're missing out on the theater experience. I'm like, what? A blown speaker and an asshole in front of me? Yes. See, Andy yes. Andy likes authenticity in his experiences. That's what I'm hearing. Was this concert film authentic then because of the way that it was shot? Yes, it was incredibly authentic. Tell us about it. You get cuts to uh, people waiting in line at the bar. You get cuts oh to people God. in the bathroom. You get cuts. <laughs> but, l- literally, because this is the concert. But you also get moments of, and I'll, and I'll talk about the big shock to me as I was watching this. You get cuts to members of the crowd dancing and rapping ar- along you get um you you get just a beautiful feeling of how important this show was and that this band the beastie boys and the beastie boys are also very important to me you you get the feeling of all this you you really really understand it it's awesome andy why are the beastie boys important to you the beastie boys are a band that kind of matched my uh, growing up experience very well in the fact that I was a 15 year old rapper. No, I <laughs> they're they're one of their most famous songs, of course. Uh, everyone everyone knows their most favorite song, "Fight for Your Right." Which, when you are a 13 year old edge lord, it's pretty funny. It's a <laughs> lot of fun. You love it. By the way, what 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 people don't know. And I mean, it's it's been a couple of years, and you've never really mentioned this. And I, I know you don't like to talk about it a lot, but but Andy is, of course, the inspiration for the film Eight Mile. Yes, yes. Uh, I don't like talking about it very much because <laughs> because I 
I, I disagree mostly with the entirety of the film because I haven't seen it. <laughs> but you are friends with Mackay Pfeiffer. That's that's real. That's yeah. That's... <laughs> yeah. So 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 this this insanely inane song, you know, Fight for Your Right, uh, very famously, the Beastie Boys had a realization. Oh, people are taking this song seriously. This song is a joke. It's making fun of the people who are taking it seriously. And it's doing actual damage both to the culture and how people see women. So they put out their album, Ill Communication, and never played this song live again. The Beastie Boys, and that is something I, as a teenager, realizing, oh, my ironically misogynistic jokes aren't ironic to a lot of people. Oh, I need to be careful about the way I put myself out because that's something that that happens and then there's there's like the um the interview <laughs> an interview with uh I forgot what like rock and roll punk magazine it was that that they were like asked hey you know beastie boys you're crazy right what have you been watching lately we what what what's your favorite movie oh well i really like this documentary on tibet and and like going in and it's just like oh it's not very rock and roll these are very intellectually driven people who want to experience a different thing yeah it's 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 funny that you say that because there was like a a 10-year period there where irony was recognizable and understood as a cultural truth and of course fight for your right was before that decade and andy making ironic jokes was after that decade of course within that decade we got the tibetan freedom concerts as you um, related to what you mentioned, but yeah, that's interesting. Keep going. But it, it's just like the Beastie Boys mirrored, you know, when I was a teenager, I liked their stuff for the same, for the wrong reason. My interpretation of it was, was harmful, but I was also putting out the same thing into the world and realizing, you know, as they grew up, they understood, uh, they, you know, they had their entire song about actually respecting women and listen, listening to, to women and, it resonated with me in a certain way, and it's also why most of their songs um, are kind of um, silly and nonsensical, because they didn't want to put out something that was was damaging. Um, the Beastie Boys are awesome. I I love them, and more importantly, I love their um, their sense of humor that they still maintained. Their their sense of wildness, like Nathaniel Hornblower, who is just Adam Yauch in a costume. <laughs> you you mentioned that you had a terrible copy of this this movie and were able to also see some pretty high quality clips. So between all of the viewing experience cuz you you talked a lot about the crowd and that that experience and and there's a there's a big moment, big realization for you that we're going to get to in a minute. But was the music good? So so the music was uh, the exact, um, for the most part, the music is really just taken out from like a live album recording, right? Like it's just the visuals. Now the visuals are amazing. The editing is phenomenal. The way that when, uh, you know, the the record scratch or when Mix Master Mike, you know, does something, the way that the, the, uh, the camera angles change according to the beat of the music, like it is awesome. It is phenomenal. 
It is good. Uh, the audio track, though, is clearly just like they recorded the music live on stage and then spliced it over. Gotcha. This sounds very much like uh, the the remastered version of the song remains the same. Right. Th- there there are cuts to like, you know, uh, uh, audience member walking and like rapping along with the song. And that is where the audio comes from the camcorder. But but otherwise, like, honestly, if you're in the middle of a camcorder uh, or in the middle of a concert and you put on the cam, like that sound speakers were probably blown out. Like, yeah, there, there's no way that that's good sound quality. It, this is a masterclass in editing. Um, Hornblower just really did it so well. Uh, is 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 this Hornblower related to Horatio just? No, no, no. Okay, no uh, relation. Th- okay. Th- this hornblower is, um, I believe he's a de Swedish, you know, a Danish Swedish. Um, okay, so he's the Swiss he's from the he's the Swedish from the Sweden hornblower family. Got it. Right, right, right. And and he yeah. he is the one who uh, famously on the MTV Music Awards <laughs> stepped up when Spike <laughs> Jones won won Best Director and stepped up and was like, "I am so happy for Spike." He is the greatest director, but uh, I have been, you know, directing Beastie Boys music videos. I saw this live, Tessa. <laughs> this is great. And, and and again, it is not just Adam Yauch in a really in a fake felt mustache wearing Lederhosen. <laughs> totally a different person. To- totally a different person. And to prove he's totally a different person, it he he is he is. In this movie, he is there. He is not just David Cross. I promise. So you keep bringing up David Cross. I, I'm like, what? What? So you said there was a big moment for you. Yes. Big, big surprising yes. moment. Yes. There, there, there was a huge shock. There was a huge shock. Right. I'm not talking about when Ben Stiller showed up uh, yeah. in the crowd. I mean, if you don't see Ben Stiller at a Beastie Boys concert, it's kind of like, what's wrong? Right. I'm talking about there's a moment... In one of the songs, and you can see this on YouTube, where it cuts the audience, and there is a baby Donald Glover rapping along with all of his heart. Aw, baby nice. Donald Glover. That's nice. Um, the, and this is 2004. This is before Donald Glover was any kind of notable figure. This is before Derek Comedy. This was just, he was in the audience, and they and he's just one of the people they showed. So he was really at that point just child Gambino. Yes, he wasn't yes. childish. Uh, he was still. But if you look up three MCs and one DJ, which is uh, one of their songs, um, he he is there very clearly. It is him. He is having the time of his life. It is great. Hopefully this this will become more accessible in the future. I'm guessing, but but in the meantime, should people root down and really put the effort into finding this? Uh, if you're creative, you can just find it on YouTube in different video trunks. That's all I'll say. Okie dokie. So, so really, if you're looking for it, I would recommend just typing in Beastie Boys Awesome. And if, if you're watching a live video of them at a concert and all three of them are wearing red shirts, it's this one. Yeah, these, these kinds of things are, are pretty interesting. Um, I, I am going to have to say it and I apologize. When when Cameron Crowe shot documentary for Pearl Jam's twentieth anniversary, they did the same. They did something very similar, 
and took a lot of fan-made footage and produced a second documentary called The Kids Are 20. And I have not seen that yet. I think it's on Amazon's music video service. But yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting idea because, like you said, it replicates that fan experience and gives you the, the flip side of most concert films, which, as you said, is very clean and artist-centric. To, to be fair, though, uh, a lot of the members of Pearl Jam specifically labeled Adam Yauch as being uh, an amazing person who they loved and when uh, he passed, you know. Oh, yeah. They they were one of the big people behind the Beastie Boys when they put up the yeah. uh, Tibetan Freedom Concerts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, of course, the Dalai Lama was another one who said uh, losing Adam Yauch was a tragedy for humankind. Yeah, I mean, it's it's that was really sad when that happened, like. I mean, they would have had like one and a half more albums at this point and lots of good philanthropic, actual good things for the earth. Not that Beastie Boy albums aren't good for the earth. They are. I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, what did, what did you, what did, what did you do this week? You, you said something about a Bob, um, you know, I, I, I'm assuming this is another artist who died too young. Yes. It was so weird watching this documentary, actually, because so many people referred to him as Bobby, and it just took me a while to be like, oh, that's who they're talking about. Bobby! One person even referred to him as Robert. Uh, Robert. So so that's always weird when you're hearing um, interviews about Robert De Niro, and people are like, yeah, Bob. Bobby. It's just yeah. like, yeah. what? Who are you talking about? Somebody else who Ben Stiller knows. Uh, <laughs> so, okay. All right. So we are talking about Bob Dylan. Yes. Back in the 90s, when Adam and the Beastie Boys were trying to free Tibet, Bob Dylan's manager, Jeff Rosen, was like, Bob Dylan's going to die someday, (laughs) almost 30 years ago. And so he actually, what he was really more like was like the people who were around at the beginning are going to start dying soon, which they did. So he began collecting interviews, getting people to talk about Bob Dylan as part of an archival project. Because he wanted all of this to be collected. So he went, tried to find yearbook photos, early recordings, get these people to lay down interviews. This is happening about the same time that Bob Dylan has decided separately, because Bob Dylan does not play well with others, ever, also decided that he wanted to start writing his memoirs, which is The Chronicles Volume 1, which is an interesting read. Uh, He's threatened that there's going to be two more. Haven't seen him yet. Rosen did all this work, got Dylan to to be interviewed. He cared nothing about this project his manager was doing, but he did agree to interviews. And so when Rosen gets all this stuff together, he's like, I don't know how to make a documentary. Let me think. Who could who do I know who makes good documentaries? I know Martin Scorsese. Because Goodfellas, I don't know if you know this, is a documentary. Right, but he also doesn't appreciate. Scorsese doesn't really appreciate uh, the documentaries uh, of the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, that's true. That's true. This is so. No Direction Home. It's a 2005 film. It was released as a two-parter for the PBS American Masters series. It is almost four hours long. Scorsese's attempt to edit all of this material into a narrative of Dylan's life through. Uh, His motorcycle accident in 1966, which is when he stopped touring for several years. 
Yeah, I think it's interesting that this is a, like almost four hours, like you said, but it only covers like a couple of decades. His childhood is covered pretty handily within the first 20 to 30 minutes. It's really mostly just about five years. Right. Yeah, there's a time where Bob Dylan was kind of, uh, might as well be considered dead as a musician. Well, yeah, it's, he was just, born it's again. interesting. It's just really interesting that like he is someone who has been making music for half a century and this there's just so much from just this like five year time period. Like, you know, you don't even have to get into the stuff that came later because this stuff was just so interesting. But what what is good about this, Sam? What did you enjoy about this? What's good? Okay. So, the first thing to know about this is and and it's funny because I knew a lot about this. I had seen a lot of things from this film in other documentaries before. But the things that you need to know are are two, two really big key pieces of information. And they are both about Dylan Goes Electric. If you don't know, there is a big controversy over the fact that Dylan put down an acoustic guitar and picked up an electric one and brought a band with him. People did not like that. People lost their minds. So according this, to this this film is kind of framed around some discovered footage of a Manchester show, in which not Bonnaroo, not that Manchester, Manchester, England, where the youths in 1966 were a little bit upset that the second half of his show was electric with a band. This is, <laughs> this is. Uh, this is where the film starts, and it uses Scorsese uses this footage as a reference point back and forth consistently throughout the film. The second thing that you need to know is that the film uses a lot of, and you can you've probably seen a lot of this footage if you're like me and have seen other documentaries from this time of the Newport uh, Folk Festival, which was a big annual music festival where the big folkies got together and did their thing, and so that was. Uh, you know, the story goes that when Dylan went electric, Pete Seeger went to go find an axe, not a guitar, an axe to cut through the chords. This is, this is a this is a story. It's a real thing. If you know the backdrop of that quote unquote controversy, that's the way this film is framed, which I think is a really smart thing to do. Boy, if you don't know about that, you're going to learn real fast that people are idiots. I have to ask you, this was something that not came the, up. Not the folk people. I understand their their complaints. But the youths in Manchester, man, they were truly mad Chester. And I don't mean in the way, Oasis or Happy Mondays way. I, I have to ask you, because this came up while we were watching it as well. Is this like one of the first examples that's been documented of like, a scene just like turning on an artist in this way. I am pretty sure this is the way most witch burnings have started. Probably. Because it's just so fascinating to me that like, there's all these kids in England, just like in this footage being like, Oh, he's sold out. And like, he, he, he's a hack now. And they're like booing him and telling him to get off the stage, which I've never seen in a show. This was, this was real hipster culture. Like in 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 two of the most annoying ways, right? The the nineteen sixty six uh, British youths who are like, do it right, or or the Newport folk people who were like, I was here when the music was good. Pushes up glasses, 
I think you're overlooking the time where um, Saki Bottom Boys actually got sponsored by Dapper Dan. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I am sure that there have been seen kids as long as there's been music. It's just, it's interesting to see like this Ooh. recorded in this way <laughs> because, yeah, it's, it well, and like Bob Dylan himself, like he's like, yeah, but Rolling Stone, like Rolling Stone was charted at number one for a while. And while they were, while he was performing it, they would stop booing him and sing along with that song and then go right back to booing him after that song was over. The thing that's really interesting about this documentary for me was diving a little bit more deeply into some of his influences and his contemporaries. You know, Scorsese spent some time talking about Gene Vincent, Muddy Waters, Lead Belly, Billie Holiday. These, these people that are very influential to Bob Dylan but you know not typical folkies right like Dylan was obsessed with folk music he knew more than anybody else did he stole he stole records and just learned everything there was to know but when he started making music he wasn't just doing that for very long he wasn't comfortable with it and that's where you see all of these other things start to be interpolated and one thing that Scorsese does that I think is pretty smart is talks about, I have never heard Harry Belafonte described as like mainstream before, but Scorsese does it in a way that you might actually believe. You know, so compares Bob Dylan to people like Johnny Mathis and Harry Belafonte as, you know, somebody who's really trying to take a genre and subvert it. There's some good stuff here that I already knew a lot about. I knew about his visits to Woody Guthrie, who was hospitalized or paranoid schizophrenia at this point, which was really misdiagnosed Huntington's, and you know how he was really a devotee of Woody Guthrie. Uh, his relationship with Joan Baez, which really differs depending on who you talk to. Like, Joan Baez was somebody he knew. According to Joan Baez, Bob Dylan was like a major part of her life. It's really sad when things work out that way, right? We've all been there, though. I love Pete Seeger. I love Pete Seeger, the the one of the founding members of the Weavers who was blacklisted. Uh, you can pretty much credit McCarthy, this film says, for folk music happening 10 years later than it did. Because Pete Seeger and the Weavers got popular with Goodnight Irene, got blacklisted 10 years later, Bob Dylan comes around. Basically is how it went. I told Tessa, if you don't know about Pete Seeger, there's a couple of documentaries about him that are great. He was a great protest dude. Um, there was a Clearwater protest movement on the Hudson River. He basically built a barge and had a festival that went down the river protesting pollution in the river. And he allegedly wanted to find an axe to cut Dylan off at the folk festival. He's a character. He got blacklisted. He wanted to cut off Dylan's music with an axe and was a cool protester. I mean, it's cool. Um, there was a lot of Peter, Paul, and Mary in this documentary. Peter is the one that you don't want to be near. It's really sad like when you grow up thinking Peter, Paul, and Mary are cool because your dad listens to him, and then you're like, oh, one of them's a terrible person. Neat. Johnny Cash has multiple appearances in this documentary. And Johnny Cash, Scorsese really gives you the feeling that Johnny Cash, idolized is not the right word, but but very much thought Dylan was a cool dude. There's some stories about him. And of course, a little bit later, after the scope of this documentary, they actually record together um, an album called Nashville Skyline. 
uh, which Cash appears on. That's great. There's a lot. I mean, it's just the the sheer amount of stuff in this documentary, sheer amount of people that uh, Scorsese talks to um, or edits together. I don't know who's actually talking to these people. Joan Baez has so much good stuff to offer. I'd like to see a documentary about her, actually. It definitely feels like three and a half hours plus, but I wasn't sorry for that. It was really, it was really entertaining. Was there anything that surprised you in this? Like you've been talking about stuff that you knew already. Is there anything new that you learned? Yeah. So as I said, I read Chronicle Volume 1 years and years ago. Um, must have been 20 years at this point, I think, because um, I read it right when it came out. And and Dylan's approach to memoir, by the way, is to talk about three different time periods, two of which are not covered in the scope of this documentary. Um, he writes a lot about getting to know the Grateful Dead and recording in the late 80s. As you know, Tessa, I have a lot to say about Bob Dylan being a Nobel Prize winner for literature. I don't think it's appropriate. <laughs> there were a number of times where I was like, Bob Dylan, Nobel Prize winner, and whatever the film has just said. Like, I, you remember... I don't. Record Thief was one of them. Yeah, Nobel Prize winner and Record Thief. Uh, I think you called him a skinny ragamuffin at one yeah. point. Yeah. yeah, it's just that I don't believe Bob Dylan's hype. I don't. Oof. Oof. Oh, bad takes of Sam solidify this. Oh. He is a great songwriter. He is a great musician. This documentary would have you believe he doesn't care about anything. That is what he wants to convey to you. He's been in the interview footage, in press conferences from this time period that are, you know, archival footage used. It's a really specific persona. And so that is leads it, you to uh, believe. Yeah, ask who is, who is the real Bob Dylan? Is the real Bob Dylan the one who doesn't care? Or the one who does care, is this a persona he puts on to protect himself? Is is it a persona through which he has written some of the most foundational pieces of music in the 20th century? Like, I don't know. I don't know. And my take on the Nobel Prize has always been, give a Nobel Prize for art or music if you want. But when you call it literature, don't. Just don't. My question coming out of this is, is, does Bob Dylan really care about anything? I know he does, but I don't know what, which makes him which makes him really interesting to listen to. Yeah, it was also really interesting the ways in which like he this this film was interesting in the way that it really made you feel like he was a political person without caring about politics he was an ambitious person without caring about fame. Like there's a lot of like contradictions in this film, which I think he purposefully encourages. Like the fact that he like lied to a lot of record producers about where he was from and where he had lived to like get his foot in the door. Like there's a lot of stuff like that in here that makes it very confusing about like who is this person really? And so I feel like I came out of this with more questions than I had answers. Right. And and you recognize Right, that I mean, you to watch this, you can't be taken in by him, right? You know, you you should go in with some. You don't need a background knowledge of Dylan. You'll learn a lot, but you do need to know that artists sometimes adopt personas. Like we all know this, 
Right. Ingmar Bergman famously made a movie about it. Well, what I would say, though, is when you start thinking about people like David Foster Wallace. Okay. And, and okay, are you putting on a persona? Are you not? Either way, you are taking something way too far. Like, it's not that I don't get what you're doing. It's I'm not impressed. And, oh. and I repeatedly get there with Dylan, put him down, and then pick him back up a couple years later till I get to that point again. Because I, to me, that's the thing about Bob Dylan. And I'll, and I'll tell you, you know, growing up in the 80s and 90s when oldie stations were still a big thing, you don't hear Bob Dylan on oldie stations a lot. He doesn't get played. I, the only thing I remember ever hearing by Bob Dylan on oldies radio was like a Rolling Stone. And seldom at that, I would hear all on the Watchtower, Jimi Hendrix, very, very often. I would hear multiple versions of Blowing in the Wind, just not his. The fact is, when, these, when the people who listened to Dylan, when people who were growing up when Dylan was a big thing, began to program radio stations, they didn't program him. And, and there's a reason for that, and I'm not sure I figured out what it is yet. But I, I have a feeling that Dylan is not somebody you're going to vibe to in a mix. I think that's kind of where we were at that point. When we're programming, manually programming, radio play, he just wasn't something somebody who came to mind. And I, I find that interesting. My dad didn't like Bob Dylan. See, and so, I grew up on Bob Dylan. No, that's all I did. My dad and I know play. you did. But yeah. the interesting thing about that is, is, you grew up with him in a very specific context. Right. Yeah. It, it was interesting also hearing like, cause like I would, I would ask you also about the music of this because you haven't really talked about that a lot, but like hearing some of like the demos of these different songs and the way that they've been translated. Like it was interesting. The fact that like he's an artist that was covered a lot and the covers are almost more famous than the originals are. Right. And I mean the, the, the time period here um you know he's got the first two albums uh bob dylan and another side of bob dylan that are very by the numbers he hey he says he hates the first album another side is another try at some of the similar things he starts working in his own songs at that point but you know i like those first two albums fine you know man of constant sorrow was fascinating to hear as somebody who heard it for the first time when the soggy bottom boys did it that's right yeah, it's but the song for Woody Guthrie, and then to hear him come into on, on his own uh, with Freewheeling Bob Dylan, uh, which which I mean is such a good album. This also covers Bringing It All Back Home and Highway 61 and Blonde on Blonde. All three albums are great. I I've liked the the first two much more than Blonde on Blonde. I like a lot of these. My favorite album comes later, much much later. There's so much. To, to Bob Dylan musically. And and it's 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 inseparable from the person who is Bob Dylan, which makes him very it's a, he's a very good subject. Uh, you know, it this is a good rock, quote unquote rock documentary. Um not rock just doc. because Scorsese did a good job of editing it together, not just because Rosen did a good job of collecting all this stuff, not just because Dylan's music is is so memorable but it's really a combination of all those things this film is the the sum is more than its parts so that's a recommend i will also mention 
that Scorsese had such a good time, he did it again in 2019. One of Dylan's tours in the uh, 70s after he came back from touring after that hiatus following the motorcycle accident is called the Rolling Thunder Review. In 2019, Scorsese put a documentary together about that tour. I am very much looking forward to watching it. Both of these films are on Netflix. Good time had by all. Name three professions. All right, that'll do it for today. Next up on Monkey Off My Backlog, we have Mambo's tribute to John Cho for reasons. <laughs> Two weeks from now, Mambo's going to camp. Camp, camp. Campy, camp, camp. Campy, camp. Campy, camp. As we had to explain Campy, it to camp, Andy. camp. Yeah, be a good time. We've got lots of good stuff coming up in the near yeah, future. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, good stuff. It's never too soon to get excited for not just the good episodes we have coming in the next couple of months, but once we hit October, it's time for... Spooktober! Son, Son of Spooktober. Spooktober. Followed by Noir Vember and the 11 Days of Star Wars. So much good stuff. Am I going to make Tessa say that many, many times before we actually get there? Yes. Yes, I will. Maybe I'm actually going to watch Mandalorian Season 2, Book of Boba Fett Season 1, and Obi-Wan. Hey, he's actually going to watch Book of Boba Fett and or Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> that's, that's you think be, you're very funny. It's a good joke. It works. Tessa? What also works is Obi-Rogue-Wan. <laughs> Tessa, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Swayla Tessa. Swayla is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nanny Og's Book Club, where my friend Nigel and I are reading through all 41 of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. You can find that on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Og's Book Club. Also, don't forget, by the way, um, be reading your Hugo Award nominees because we're going to talk about those at the end of August. That is correct. Yeah. Andy, where can people find you online? You can find me at Andy Noted and also rocking out to the best use of Diagenic Soundtrack, Star Trek Beyond. There we go. On a Linux laptop. Two turntables in a Linux laptop. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Two turntables ah. and a Linux laptop. Where it's at. You can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9. Send us your thoughts about the monkeys we talked about today. What pop culture you've crossed off your list lately. What rockumentary or concert film you've watched lately. What you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Monkey Backlog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back. Yay!